Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Jailbreak. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 30. My name's Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in Durham, North Carolina in another city park. Um, kind of a cloudy, mild day, so we decided to do this one outside. We prefer that. Um, let's see, what's happening in my world? Uh, I guess the biggest thing is this diet that Teresa's got me on. <laughs> it's like this 30-day diet um, that we're not allowed to eat dairy legumes, wheat, alcohol, sugar, and a lot of other additives. Um, And the main purpose of the diet is to exclude these things and then like reintroduce them slowly after 30 days to see like what you might be sensitive to. So that's my attraction, why I'm doing the diet. If uh, coffee had been on the list, I would have just immediately (laughs) said no. But uh, it sucks, man. I'm really like missing my beer and my cheese. Um, But at the same time, I'd say I recommend the diet because it teaches you a lot, you know, about discipline and about like how food makes you feel. And I had no idea what being addicted to food meant until I started this diet. Yeah, especially in right now in this time with all the processed foods that are out there. And we as dumpster divers, we're trying to incorporate the healthiest food from the dumpsters into this diet. But it is it can be difficult, especially when there's sugar in everything. It's it's like they put this drug in all of our food so that we can stay on it. Yeah. So this is episode 30, Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps. And we're still experimenting with like what formats we uh, would prefer and the best way to kind of convey the information that we want to talk about. So we're going to try something new here, kind of an interview format. And uh, Teresa's going to be my interviewer, and I'm going to be her interviewee. So when you're ready, Teresa. Yeah, this this podcast is uh, five easy steps, and Gumby is going to explain these steps. But when he told me, I was absolutely fascinated. I was gobsmacked. I was aghast. It is. It's typically the way I feel when Gumby starts to explain something that he's been hashing out in his brain for I don't know how long he was thinking about this. I'm a hasher. How did you come up with these five steps? Well, as you know, Teresa, we uh, spend a lot of time or have spent a lot of time. We're trying to get back on it. But the Mountains of Sea Trail and uh, anybody who's done backpacking knows that, like, you've got a lot of time out there where you're just hiking, putting one foot in front of the other. And it's this beautiful time to think. So one day I'm walking along the Mountains of Sea Trail. I think we're walking along roads this time, trying to hitchhike with our thumbs out, not getting rides, these backcountry roads. And I'm just like overflowing with all these ideas um, from these books I'm reading and, and documentaries I'm watching that are really inspiring me. And as I'm walking, I'm realizing they kind of coalesce into sort of five major categories. Um, the categories being um, animism, you know, like a deeper relationship with um, nature, you know, just kind of redefining our relationship and how we fit in it. Bushcraft, the the nuts and bolts, the survival skills themselves, how to live out in the woods, the heritage skills that have been with the human species for three million years, um, 
new fact I just memorized. Um, anarchism, you know, the problems with our society and the revolution that's been brewing and has has exploded out many times in history. Um, freeganism, I'd say more the urban survival, kind of the scavenging, like, you know, just not spending money. And Wetico, which was an idea that I had recently really got rolling with and I'm fa- still fascinated with. And I also realized that they kind of suggested a, uh, a path, an order of progression, um, the first being Wetico and then on to what I'd call freeganism or scavenging, then on to anarchism, um, and then animism and bushcraft. Um, and I would say probably my time studying Buddhism, um, I used to be really into Buddhism, still have a, a big place in my heart for Buddhism. Um, the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, I think, was something that I thought was really cool and helped me a lot. So I think I was primed for, you know, a progressive path that fits together in this way. So maybe the Four Noble Truths affected me as well. Yeah, you make lists a lot. Um, so did the Buddha. <laughs> that's right. My my own Buddha. So you've made this list. What's the intended outcome of these steps, like of following these steps? Um, well, first of all, calling this escaping society in five easy steps is sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek. I realize it's not so simple as that, and I'm kind of uh, making fun of my, uh, I guess, proclivity to make these lists. Um, the reason why I'm sharing them, though, is I've, I've been with this list over a year now, maybe a couple years, and it still is something I think about, something that I find helpful. Um, so to share that and also as a suggestion, because I've had people ask me, so you're doing a podcast called Escaping Society. How exactly do you escape society? I'm not claiming to know. We're experimenting and we meet with all kinds of uh, failures and change our tactic all the time. But it is a suggestion. It's a suggested path meant to spur conversation. Um, so I would love to hear like from anybody, as usual, um, if there's something here that you've tried that you disagree with, that you're really inspired by, just to get a conversation rolling. Because I feel like I had the same question. Like it, It's all well and good when you start looking around at civilization and want to get the hell out of it. But how? So this is just one suggestion of how to do it. And I, I have found it to be very helpful for myself, both me and Teresa, actually, with what, what the things we're doing. Um, and it's also the rough framework of our podcast. So when we're doing these different topics, um, I don't do them in order, but all of these podcasts for me fit into one of these five categories. Some of them overlap. There's a lot of overlap and, uh, you know, interconnectedness uh, between them. But yeah, I, I could take any podcast that we've done or are going to do and fit them loosely within one of these five topics. And before we go any further, uh, you had mentioned the Four Noble Truths. That's uh, part of Buddhism. So what are the Four Noble Truths? Um, the Four Noble Truths, it's the first sutra or sermon that Buddha gave after he achieved enlightenment and uh, left his spot under the Bodhi tree after that, that long night, the dark night of the soul. Um, when he came to some of his former, uh, what would I say, fellow ascetics, um, that were to become his first students. He delivered the four sutras, as his, uh, the four noble truths, as his first sutra. And roughly, the first truth is the truth of suffering, dukkha, that something is not right in the human experience. Um, the second truth is the cause of suffering. Why, where does this come from? And he identified it as attachment, as thirst, um, desire. 
The third noble truth is, are we capable of being anything different? And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, which is actually the steps to liberate yourself from this, this state. You know, dukkha is the ultimate problem. It's the foundational problem of all problems. If you got cancer, cancer is just a fact of life. The problem is the dukkha. Um, and I like thinking of it in terms as like kind of a medical progression. Like first you identify the symptoms. We have problems in our culture. We're all seeing them. There's symptoms everywhere. There's class hierarchy. There's people going hungry. There's homeless people. Then you diagnose it. So where's all this coming from? Um, and then you make a prognosis. Can this be helped? Is there something we can do about it? And finally, the prescription. Can you find a way to actually address the problem and fix it? Um, my groupings are generally are, are kind of like the first step. Wetico is identify the problem. And then I have two steps that are both negatives, how to fight the problem or back out of the problem, kind of escape society, followed by what I call the two positives, which are things to replace that with. Because mm-hmm. if you just remove civilization from your life, we are all surrounded by civilization. There's a vacuum there. There's a hole. And if you don't fill it with something, I don't think you fix the problem. So that's kind of the way I think of them. I really like that. It's a it's like a mirror of the four truths kind yeah, of in loosely, a way. yeah. Um, so you'd mentioned Wetico and I've we've both kind of read a little bit or you've read a lot about Wetico, but what do you mean by Wetico and how does Wetico manifest in today's world? Well, as I said, this is sort of my first noble truth, you know, look at the problem, the dukkha. Um, I think that is the most like, I love that part of the Four Noble Truths. Identify the problem. How, how do you even know, like, if you need to fix the problem, if you have a problem, or how to fix it, unless you really have the guts to turn around and stare that demon in the face? So my earliest question I can remember that kind of spurred me onto this path is, what's wrong with us? I mean, I even as a kid, I couldn't escape this observation that the squirrels seemed so natural in the, their environment. The deer, the bugs, everything just seemed to belong here. And I always had to go home at dark. It felt weird. I have to, like, wear all these extra clothes when everything else is just as naked as it was in the summer. How did this happen? Why are we such a different species? So that question spurred me on the search of trying to to find an answer to that. My answer, I'd say right now, is what I'm about to talk about, Wetico. Um, my introduction to Wetico was another pronunciation of it from uh, another Indian tribe in North America, what's now North America, um, where it was pronounced Windigo. And I read it in, I think, a book called More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But it was some compilation of scary stories, and it was basically this boogeyman that if you were out in the wilds of the North Woods by yourself, this wind might start calling your name and pick you up and drag you across the snow and then burn you alive. And it was this scary story. So that's what I knew of a Windigo for my whole childhood. When I got older and started teaching at Schoolhouse of Wonder, one of the teachers had invented a game called Windigo. So that was pretty cool to run into this game that, you know, I was roughly familiar with the term. And she would tell a story of the Windigo, which would launch into this game. And when I think look back now with my uh, recent understanding of what Windigo is, I'm kind of fascinated with how the story plays out because I don't think she knew the deeper understanding of a Windigo. I think to her it was also like a boogeyman. But the story is basically that there's this monster that's harming the village, this tribe of people. And uh, a little boy 
figures out, according to the way the story was told to me, that the, the monster is made out of stones. And so they build this trap and they dig a big pit and hide it. And the boy runs. He's the bravest one in the village. And the monster chases him, falls through the trap. And they've noticed in their sweat lodges that if you have a certain kind of rock and pour cold water on it too fast, it will explode. So they bring all this cold water and the whole village works together. No one person could do it by themselves. And they pour water on the Wendigo. It explodes. And according to what story you hear, it turned into mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes are still trying to devour us. Hmm or small shards of rock. Um, and then it would launch into this game where the teachers hide in the woods and we like get really messy and get scary and camouflage up. And the kids are all villagers and they're encouraged to work together to find us. Um, if we tag them, they turn into ghosts. They can't talk anymore, but they can still look for this object. It's usually a gourd that we have, have hidden in the woods somewhere. Um, they can point to it, but they can't carry it. They're a ghost. So they can direct other villagers to it. Again, teamwork, working together. If one of the kids that hasn't been killed yet grabs the gourd and takes it to the approved spot that's the, the safe zone, the Wendigos lose their power. And then the kids, the game is not over. The kids have to go tag the Wendigos. So then the Wendigos are the chased ones. They hide. Hmm. I think that's really cool with my new understanding of Wendigo or Wetico because Wendigo actually is something that breaks tribe, breaks the sacred hoop, isolates us. That's its power. It makes us feel alone. Um, it makes us hungry to fill that gap of the lack of tribe. And even when you've defeated the Wendigo, they have to still chase down the Wendigos and destroy them because the Wendigos are that dangerous. Um, I find a lot of metaphor that might be accidental in that story. Um, and then finally, later I came across this documentary, I Am, which is an awesome documentary. I highly recommend it. And he brings up the idea of Wetico. I think that's my first introduction to that word. And he describes it in those terms of like a tribe, you know, maybe there's one person in the tribe a long time ago that decided they're the best hunter. Instead of sharing, they'd keep the meat. And it's a contagious disease because if you're doing that to your neighbors, maybe one of your neighbors is a good trapper. And one day the hunting wasn't so good. So now the rabbit trapper decides, well, I'm going to keep my meat too. It destroys a tribe. It creates a way of life that does not serve the people anymore. It's one of the most dangerous things that could happen. Um... So, whew, I, uh, I hesitate to try to, de to uh, describe or, or, what am I trying to say, define Wetico, but I'll take a shot at it. To me, it's something between a demon possession and a mental illness. It's something that in our culture we can't really understand because by its very nature, it's invisible to us. It's part of the nature of a Wetico to be invisible. You don't know you're infected. It normalizes itself. You can never go to a psychiatrist and be diagnosed with Wetico because the very act of going to a psychiatrist in this way, in this system, is part of the Wetico. Um, it's an insidious thing. It's, it's viral, so contagious. Um, it's hard to even know how to fight the Wetico, it's said, because by fighting the Wetico, you become the Wetico. Mm. Um, and you can see this, this sad bit of history playing out again and again with cultures trying to figure out what to do with our colonizing Wetico civilization as we spread and infect across the globe. They try to fight. What happens in the long run? They become us. Um, 
So yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. But I will direct you to a book by Jack Forbes, which when Teresa and I were on a houseless retreat, we were actually hiding out in a library taking turns reading this book um, (laughs) to have an excuse to be there as we're homeless for the week. Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack Forbes, who's an Indian activist. I'd say that's probably the defining book if you want to start somewhere to read more about Wetico. Um, I'd follow that up with Paul Levy's book, Dispelling Wetico. Wetico. Um, There's a concern there with... Um, appropriation, that a white man is taking this native word and redefining it a little bit. But I still found it for myself interesting. He really goes deep into a lot of things, and especially the end part where he talks about how he come across, came across these ideas is kind of mind-blowing. So if you're really into deep thoughts and philosophy, you'll probably get a kick out of dispelling Wetico. And finally, um, something I'd read before I came across the term Wetico was reading Carlos Castaneda, The Teachings of Don Juan, and in one of the last books, it might be the last book, he describes one of Don Juan's last lessons to him, where he puts him in a state of non-ordinary reality, where he can see, and if you've read Don Juan's books, you understand what I mean by that. Um, And for the first time, Carlos perceives these luminous eggs that we truly are, these auras around us, so to speak, the energy of, uh, of us, Um, And these dark figures that are menacing, that lurk around, that seem to feed on it. And he comes out of the state, and he's like, oh, my God, what was that? And Don Juan says, I've been been saving this lesson for you. This is the sad state of humanity. According to Don Juan, many, many years ago, according to the Yaqui way of knowledge, these inorganic beings, beings with no mass, no materiality, came from somewhere else. He doesn't bother, like, saying another planet or another dimension. All we need to know is somewhere else. And they feed on our energy. Um, They harvest us. And the way he describes these things is we're meant to be much more than we are. And at one time we were. Every human being you know now is a diminished human being because of these inorganic beings. Hmm. The really interesting part that made the connection here with these inorganic beings to the Wetico I had read about is he says that the inorganic beings, the way they stay so invisible to us is they have replaced our minds with their own. Um, So we think their thoughts. We don't think like human beings anymore. That's why we're in this state. That's why when I wondered as a child, how come we're so different? This is the answer. Um, That's why we feel like we don't belong here because we're thinking with their, their thoughts. We think these inorganic beings' ideas. Um... You haven't really talked to a human being unless you've talked to someone that's outside of this somehow. Now, I know how that sounds, and that's probably why he left that for one of his last books, because it sounds so freaking crazy. He might have just thrown the book down and dismissed him as a nut. (laughs) But luckily, I had read all this stuff about Wetico, really intelligent conversations and arguments describing it. And so it made me think that many other cultures, even though they don't use the word Wetico, have noticed this. And the more you read and the more you research, the more you find warning tales in all indigenous cultures of something like this. So I think it's something that wasn't just reserved for us, I'd say the white people, but it's beyond white people. But our culture, it's something every culture has run into, but they have found ways to defeat it. We're one of the few cultures that got infected by it and it took over where we couldn't even see it anymore. We didn't even know there was something to be defeated. We thought it was progress. Um... And you ask how it's manifested in today's world. 
I'd say just contrast it with tribal life, a life that worked for the people. There were no revolutions. There were no protests. The, the people were served. The people shared. The people thought they had a whole ide- different identity of self. Contrast that with the extreme selfishness that may seem so normal to us. We think we, we know more about the world because of our science and the tribal people. But look out how it doesn't serve us, how it's destroying us. It's destroying all life. If there's ever been an infection or a disease, it would be the way we live which is another way of saying Wetico. So I'd say the way that's the way it's manifested. If you want to see the way it's manifested in today's world, think about the way people live in a tribe and, and look at the contrast. Yeah, that's so disturbing on so many levels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have it. I'm not, like, I don't know how aware I really am of it, but, you know, you can start to see it more easily when you look outside of yourself. You're like, oh, yeah, of course the... Uh, the corporatists, the people that have all the power, all the money, they're like sucking out, they're eating us, our energy, by making us wage slaves. But then what do we do? Because we're not us, we're not immune to that. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point, because Paul Levy draws this distinction of super wetikos, which would be maybe what we call the 1%. <laughs> but I find that to be a slippery slope because it's so easy to start pointing fingers again and you've fallen into the Wetico's trap, which means you see the other person as the Wetico and, and fail to see the Wetico in yourself. That's the most dangerous Wetico. That's what you have the most power over as well. So uh, I don't know. I don't get too caught up in looking for the super Wetico's. I just, well, I'll talk later about uh, kind of some of the more empowering thoughts that I derive from this whole Wetico philosophy. Yeah, because like you said, the first step is recognizing that you have the problem. Yeah, this is step one, identify the problem. And a lot of people today, they talk about privilege, one example being so-called white privilege. Explain privilege as you see it. Well, first of all, I understand what white privilege means, and I don't completely dismiss it. But here's my, my problem with it. Privilege implies that we have it so good, and Privilege just completely neglects the idea that we may all be stark raving mad. So the compassionate thing to do if you have a privilege is to share that. Um, You know, well, I have clean water. I want everybody to have clean water the way I have it, through modern plumbing, pipes to my house, filters, chemicals. Um, You know, I want to do a good thing, so I'm going to go to this third world country and, like, give them modern plumbing. Um, Now, that... If you think of our lifestyle as a privilege, it leads to actions so much different than thinking of it as a disease that you might want to quarantine. The compassionate thing is not to spread this disease and try to heal it. Um, It puts us on top to think of things as privilege. We're the privileged ones, and these other people are not privileged. And we conveniently forget that the other people were fine until we started imposing our culture on them. Um, We put them underneath us. So this privilege, you're telling me it's a privilege to destroy my children's future. I don't think that's a privilege. It's a, it's a privilege to be so depressed and so um, full of anxiety that so many people are seeking medications to numb themselves. This is a privileged life. You're telling me it's a privilege to be surrounded by technology that makes me increasingly disconnected from the beautiful natural world and that I know that my very life is contributing to the death of the planet that gives me everything that nurtures me. I don't think of that as a privilege. And I find a lot more benefit from looking at it as a disease because that leads me to treat it much differently. Damn. 
I remember reading, I think it was in John Lamedeer, it might have been in Black Elk Speaks, but uh, in one of those books, they mentioned the word W-T-I-K-O, like Wetiko, hmm. Wetiko, and its, um, its meaning was crazy. I mean, just simply crazy. You read pretty much anything, especially written by an indigenous person, and if you don't come across the word Wetiko, you will come across the idea. Yeah. Um, this idea of white privilege would seem to indicate that we came over here and people like weren't living well. So, you know, it's a colonizing mindset. Um, a lot of the times, like when we look back on our ancestors, we imagine these murderous people, and some of them were, but a lot of them were actually trying to help. The missionaries, they thought they were bringing something good to the indigenous tribes. And missionaries are a key part of the strategy of colonization. Um, it's... It's really upside down, and it's a common way of looking at things by indigenous people that, no, actually, we don't want what you have. Nobody ran up to the white people when they showed <laughs> up and said, thank God you saved us. They began to trade with them. They were fascinated with the, the, the toys until they got roped in to this infectious disease, this Wetico. It destroyed them just like it destroyed us. So if we're all sickened by Wetico, if we all have it, what could we do about it? Well, I look at Wetico, it's a process of uh, waking up. Um, and just like anybody who's getting woken up, for the most part, people don't want to be woken up. There's a con kind of fuzzy comfort in sleep. So right away, you run into, um, I would say, animosity, friction. Um, so that leads us to our next step. I said there are two negatives and two positives following the identification. We've identified the problem as Wetico, now a negative. So how do we start backing out of this sickness? How do we, we get away from its causes? Um, I really like this book by Don Miguel Ruiz, The Fifth Agreement, a sequel to The Four Agreements, which is also an excellent book. He describes the three levels of awareness. The first level, he says, is the victim. And this is the mass majority of people you see. They completely believe their story in their mind. They believe that their story is the true story. And they're in a total state of misery because the story never seems to be accepted by everyone else. Bafflingly, they have the truth, and yet no, but why can't other people accept it? It's, it's the true story. That's how they're living. So this victim always imagines people are doing things to them. Pretty much nothing is their fault because since they have the true story, they're doing the right thing. Hmm. So... Um, it's a very disempowering state. The second level of awareness, which I, I know a lot of people, I think people listening to this podcast would fall on this one a lot. He calls the warrior. The warrior still is subject to this story. It still plays the victim quite a bit, but now and then comes out of it, sees that there are different stories. There is no one truth. There are many different ways to be. Um, but then they sink back into their old habits. Um, the warrior feels like this war will never end. It's just a non-ending battle. The warrior tends to be a very uh, a person who's struggling quite a bit. Followed by the third level of awareness, which he calls the master. The master can play with different realities, recognizes that stories are just stories, and jumps back and forth. So anyway, I brought all that up as kind of a rambling answer to your question, um, because. What do you do about Wetico? I think one of the first things is to increase our awareness, to start waking up, to start questioning these stories, not to be so embedded in whatever you think is right that you can't see that it's just one story. There are many stories playing out here. It's a web work of infinite stories. It's Indra's net. Um, 
I remember years ago when I took a class with Tom Brown at Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School in New Jersey. He wrote on the board, question. He wrote quest in capital letters and research. Search was in capital letters. Quest and search, question and research. And he was describing tracking, but I feel like one of the first answers to what do you do about Wetico is the question. Question and research is the same thing. It's the seeking. Um, You're starting a quest, and it's a never-ending quest. You're going to chase that rabbit down holes you never thought you'd go to. It's going to go into surprising places, and you better have some guts because you're going to see a lot of shit you didn't want to see. Um, (laughs) It's a quest just as as noble and incredible as anything like a group of knights chasing the dragon ever went on. Um, And the search, the search for the truth and the search for a cure from Wetico. And keep in mind, this is not exactly the way Tom Brown used it, but it inspired me. I've always remembered that quest and search and the question and research. Um, Some ways to question, you know, it's one thing to say, just start asking questions, but we're kind of trapped in our own minds. So our questions are by necessity limited. I love Daniel Quinn's Martian Anthropologist. Um, God, where did he talk about that? We read that book together. It was, I think it was, if they give you lined paper, write sideways. I think so. But he says, imagine you're not from this culture. Imagine you're from another planet. Take nothing for granted. Now look at the habits of the human being of our culture. (laughs) Try to pretend like you're a Martian anthropologist. And bringing imagination into this questioning process really adds an an added depth to it, to say the least. Um, Another thing I really enjoyed that helped my questioning process was Paul Levy, the author of Dispelling Wetico, He talks a little bit in the end about these dream groups. I don't remember what he calls them, but the premise is that he gets together with these people and they treat their lives as if they're a dream. You don't need to believe your life is a dream necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a spiritual statement, but what kind of questions, what kind of observations come up if you look at your life the same way you try to interpret a dream? Why did you talk to that person? Why are you, why is somebody you argue with a puppet maker. Um, <laughs> that's not for my own life whatsoever. I don't. Um, but looking for the meaning in that way, because we, we tend to just think life is random, purposeless. You know, Even if we think we don't, that's the way we treat life. What if you treat life the same way you do a dream? Why did that just happen? Why did that person come right then? What if all this is like from the same mind? What if? What does that do to your perception? So to me, that's another mental exercise that really can encourage your questioning on a whole different level. Um, History. We are taught a very one-sided history. History is used to control us. Um, And for more on that, I love Freddie Perlman's book, Against His Story, Against Leviathan. It is one of my favorite books I've ever read. And um, if you want to avoid the whole appropriation issue but still explore this idea, this is my favorite book because he's not talking about Wetico, but he is. He talks about Leviathan, and he goes through the whole history of our culture in terms of this Leviathan, which is another word for this monster we've created, civilization. And he talks about it like a living thing. And at first, I had a hard time understanding where he's coming from. But then I thought about the animist perspective, that everything has life, um, including not just beyond animals and plants, but water, wind, even stories. Stories are said to be alive. 
Um, you got to be careful when you tell a story. You got to take care of your story. It's alive. Masks in Africa, these what we would call an inanimate mask, they believe have life. So in a world where everything's alive, is it so strange to think of a culture itself as a life beyond the sum of its parts? Mm. And that's the way he describes it. He says you can replace the leader. You would think if if this culture is human-centered, you could take the leader out and it would fall apart. But that's not what we see. The leader is replaced. We've created something extra-human, beyond human, um, or been infected with something beyond human, depending on how you look at it. So, yeah, that book, I mean, what do you think about that that book, Teresa? I know we read some of it together. Oh, God, I mean, whatever books Gumby's mentioning, it really takes you to the place where you're looking behind the curtain at the wizard, and it's it's scary, but it's also just mind-blowing, and you start to question and look at things differently you can't like you can't go back mm-hmm. and that's how I felt about that book too and I would say another part and I know I'm jumping back and forth because to me these are all connected between the first step and the second step but in line with the first step of uh, identifying the problem I would say some kind of mindfulness and meditation if we're trying to wake up we need to wake up and mindfulness is a huge part of that know what you're doing I'd say avoid multitasking whenever possible know when you feel bad know when you're angry know when you're confused know when you're not your best self. Know when you're washing the dishes. You know, just bring mindfulness to everything and some form of meditation. Um, you know, I'd say basically any way you can make yourself sit the hell down and shut the hell up. <laughs> you know, kindly. You know. Yeah, or not. You know, sometimes you really need to boss yourself around. But one of the first wild elements that I think we can ally ourselves with to help us escape society is silence. Silence is something that this Wetico culture, it's a huge enemy. Notice how much silence we don't allow in our lives. I mean, we're working, we're busy, the radio's on, we go to our favorite music, we're playing a video game, we're talking. We've become a culture really frightened of silence. And I think there's a reason for that. That meditation is a way to bring the silence, which is not a man-made thing. It's, it's, I believe silence has a life just like everything else, and we're inviting it to help us. It's our first friend we should make on the way out. You look like you had something to say, Teresa. Oh, I was just remembering uh, we were listening to the radio, which is funny, um, not practicing silence. But this woman on there was talking about her favorite reality shows, and it was some sort of reality comic con type event. And she said that she just loves to have it on in the background as white noise. I mean, mm-hmm. think about that. Having... TV, reality shows, especially on as white noise. That's not white noise. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a reason why we're surrounded by so much noise. It's not white noise. It's not idle noise. It is, in fact, brainwashing us. I wasn't going to talk much about Darren Brown right here, but Google (laughs) Darren Brown if you want to see how freaking elastic your mind is, how easily you are brainwashed. Um, Yeah. And Part of that is learning to see, and I mean that in a different way, not just a visual thing, and learn with both our mind and our body. That's why I recommend some kind of contemplation, some kind of meditation. Uh, Peace Pilgrim said she didn't need to sit down. Her contemplation, her meditation was walking. So I wouldn't limit that to any one school of like whatever you think of with meditation. Some way to bring silence back into your life. Um, Again, leaning back on my animism, one thing that said again and again in animism, is sensuality is a big part of what we've lost. So we need to learn with both our intellect and our body 
So this meditation brings your body into it. It's something your body is learning with your intellect. Your intellect has been so inflated by our culture because it's so easily manipulated. Your body is not so easily manipulated. Um, this intellect is the wrong tool for perceiving reality. We see that again and again in all faiths, um, from hymns to meditations to chants, ways to get out, to, to sidestep this intellect so you can perceive something deeper. So I'd say something like that, like immediately start bringing that in. That's one of your first steps to identifying the wetico in yourself and getting free of it. Bring the power of silence in. Um, one of the things the idea of Wetico does for me is it humbles me. It's so easy, and you see this everywhere. People are getting angry. People are feeling like something needs to be done, and what you see that turn into is finger-pointing. This person, that person, and suddenly we're all quibbling, and nobody, nothing that needs to get addressed is getting addressed because we're so busy fighting each other. Wetico reminds me that we are all stark, raving, mad. We share a mental illness. We share this. So whatever group I think I'm against, yeah, they're fucking crazy. But you know what? I'm fucking crazy too. <laughs> so it, it, to me, it tempers me down a little bit. You know, like it makes me look for what is the problem? What's the thing driving us both crazy? Um, your parents were stark, raving, mad. And then they stuck you in a school of organized insanity just to really cement the stark raving madness and you were taught then you go on to college and you're taught how to be stark raving mad out in the world and so you lead this life that feels so normal it feels so sane but how could it not be stark raving mad i mean we're destroying the planet we live on we're destroying our kids future if that's not stark raving mad if you don't see that that's part of your stark raving madness um the other thing this idea of Wetico does for me, why it's so powerful for me, is it is empowering. Suddenly I'm free to, to try a lot of things I might have been scared to try before because of peer pressure. Um, you know, peer pressure is a huge force that weighs on us. We don't want people to think we're weird or crazy or stupid or um, a lot of things. But when you start seeing how stark raving mad that we're all diseased with this uh, Wetico, what does peer pressure matter? I mean, who cares what crazy people think of you? You know, if you're trying something crazy, they're already doing something crazy. Obviously, it's not working. They're part of civilization. It's not working. So that frees me to do a lot of things that I might otherwise be embarrassed to do. Um, I find Wetico to be a very empowering idea like that. Breaking rules. Breaking rules. <laughs> um, we have a lot of podcasts that are kind of dancing around this idea of Wetico without necessarily identifying it. A couple that come to mind, um, one of the earliest ones is episode three, movies. You know, a lot of that when we're talking about pro propaganda and things like that, that's Wetico. And on to episode 26, Indigenous People's History of the U.S., you know, questioning this Wetico version of history we've been taught. Um, and so I don't think, unless you have any more questions about Wetico, that I have much more to say about that, but that would move us on to Freeganism, the next step. Yeah, and how did this term Freeganism come about? Well, the way I heard it from an, another really great book called Freegans, Diving into Food Waste by Alex V. Bernard, which if you're into dumpster diving or anything of that nature, you'll probably get a lot of useful information from this book. He tells the story of... Keith McHenry, who is the co-founder of Food Not Bombs, um, he was a vegan, and Food Not Bombs is this really awesome organization that scavenges food and provides vegan meals to people on the street. They're constantly having run-ins with the cops because all they want to do is give people food, and in our culture, um, 
<laughs> one of the ways to keep us under control is that food is not just like flowing out for free. So Keith McHenry one day was with a bunch of his anarchist friends and in a Whole Foods store, or some kind of co-op store, and they were like going around just eating the hell out of free samples, you know, just like, hmm, that's what they were there for, nothing else. They got kicked out of the store, so they said, screw it, we'll go to the dumpster around back because we know what's back there. They're going through this dumpster, and he comes across, Keith comes across this huge wheel of cheese, um, like just enormous. And he's having this ethical dilemma with himself. He's a vegan for ethical reasons. He doesn't want to support the horrible things done to animals in the meat industry and the, the deforestation that goes with it. And But he's looking at this wasted animal product and thinking, I don't feel ethically good about just wasting this either. You know, it's just sitting in there. Um, maybe there's like a bigger picture happening here. So he starts eating the cheese, and one of his friends, you know, says, what the hell are you doing? We're vegans. <laughs> and he says, well, maybe we need to be freegans. And <laughs> that's according to the story where the word first came from. Um, the idea being that, you know, scavenging food, you're boycotting everything. If you're a vegan, you're boycotting a lot of things that are horrible, but then you're buying other things that also come from questionable farms or are shipped in gas-powered vehicles or wrapped in plastic or expensive. So what do you have to do to get the money to buy it in the first place? Hmm. Um, but a freegan has boycotted everything. He gets the food for free and there's no limits in, except for your dietary preferences on what you can eat in the freaking diet. But the point is, you're not spending money. You've boycotted money, which a freaking believes is the fuel to all the other ugliness. And Gumby introduced me to dumpster diving, and I was vegetarian uh, for about seven years or so. And I started eating things that were not vegetarian out of the dumpster, fish and bacon and all sorts of cheeses. Because I also, I agree with that freeganism. I couldn't justify wasting the food that was coming from animals from their lives. I mean, whether they're being killed and, and slaughtered or whether they're being hooked up to machines for the milk to drain out to make the cheese or whatever. It just, it, it sent my mind spinning. And so here we are. But why is freeganism the next step in your five easy steps? Well, as I'm researching all this stuff, like I said in the beginning, you know, identifying the problem. And once I began to identify the problem, I don't want to say, like, I've identified it as if that's over. Um, there's always more depth to see in the Wetico. And keep in mind, you're thinking with a Wetico mind, so you're, you're always going to be limited. Um, the first thing I saw was that freeganism or scavenging produced immediate results. I started off with bushcraft, wilderness survival skills, and... That was difficult, to say the least. I'll talk more about that when we get to the, the bushcraft section, step five. But by dumpster diving, I had immediate results. I could completely boycott food right away because I found so much food in the dumpster, which allowed me to not need as much money so I didn't have to work as much. And, you know, that, that idea of silence as being our ally in the beginning, that led to all this the scavenging to this wonderful treasure of free time. Mm -hmm. This is something we don't allow in our culture. You know, even when we stop working, we take a vacation, we fill that up. We've got classes to go to. We've got things to do. Look at the, the average vacation. It's just like taxing, you know, people are exhausted after a vacation, but free time just to be here, just to, to think about these things more, to read more books, to research more. Remember the search and research. Now I've got time to really research. So it's not just a one-way street. The freeganism in turn empowers the, the research of Wetico, the, the search for identifying the problem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would say that if you're trying to fight the Wetico, you know, the Wetico is like, I imagine this, this monster that we're, this is the thing that needs to be defeated. Your primary weapon is not feeding it. For every one of us that chooses not to feed the Wetico, it gets ever so slightly weaker. And it is the, the, the strongest strategy we have is to find ways not to feed it anymore, not to buy things, not to feed this consumer culture. There's this great quote by Daniel Quinn in Beyond Civilization, which is sort of his answer to people who asked further questions after reading the Ishmael trilogy. As everyone knows, especially revolutionaries, hierarchy maintains formidable defenses against attack from the lower orders. It has none, however, against abandonment. This is in part because it can imagine revolution, but it can't imagine abandonment. But even if it could imagine abandonment, it couldn't defend against it because abandonment isn't an attack. It's just a discontinuance of support. It's almost impossible to prevent people from doing nothing, which is what discontinuing support amounts to. So that, I think, is the essence of what I'm describing here. Um, your first way to start backing away from Wetico and start moving towards sanity is discontinuing support, and there's not much they can do to stop you. Um, the economy, I don't think money is the root of all evil is accurate, but I think money is one of the primary, if not the primary weapon of our Wetico culture. Everything that I can think of that I oppose is involved in money, including keeping us busy, that enemy of silence. We're pursuing money. We feel like we need more money. We never have enough health care. We never had a, have a good enough insurance plan. We never have that next technology that's about to come out that's going to keep us in touch with this world that we feel so lonely and hungry for. Um, money. Churches. Always asking for money. You know, our, our modern religions are tied into money. Our government. Do I need, even need to describe it? Money. Why is the, the, the forest, why, why is the environment collapsing? Look at any of the causes? You don't have to look very far to tie back into money. So it makes sense that the first thing to start doing is to not need this culture, not feed it. Um, this culture eats money, and we're feeding it, just like we're at a petting zoo and feeding these demons. Here's a dollar, here's a dollar, here's a five, here's a ten. <laughs> so... Yeah, Freakinism has been and continues to be my, my primary tool for getting away from that beast. And the good news is that our society is crumbling. There's cracks in the fortress everywhere, and it is hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging waste. That's not good news in the sense of what it does to the environment. It's good news in the sense of you beginning to fight that structure because that waste if you have the right mindset, are your resources. Mm. You can use that waste against the beast itself. It's not freedom yet because you're still depending on, dependent on the beast. What could you scavenge if there wasn't civilization? You certainly couldn't dumpster dive. But as long as this monster stands, um, you can use this waste that's just everywhere that they can't contain. They're trying to. There's security guards telling you not to be in dumpsters. There's locks on dumpsters. They're trying to. But there's too much of it. They're doing a sloppy job, and they can't help it. It's a, it's a crumbling, teetering culture we're in, and this is my first step towards freedom. You mentioned bush, bushcraft briefly, and I know you're going to talk more about that later, but in what ways does being a freegan differ from just, for example, living off-grid? Um, it doesn't necessarily have to differ in a lot of ways, but I'd say one of the primary ways, at least the way most people do it, is um, living off-grid for a lot of people means consumerism. You buy solar panels, you buy gardening stuff. 
you uh yeah so the consumerism is the biggest difference but like i said there doesn't have to be you could live off a grid and hold on Teresa. that's about all i had to say for that i'll get him <laughs> oh goodness well what about money don't we need money and work like can we really have a meaningful existence without work yeah, a wiser person might have learned to put the dog in the van by now, but <laughs> <laughs> not us. All right, so your question was, what about money? Don't we need money? Um, well, actually, a very dear friend of mine who used to be a student of mine, Ying, came by and visited me at my one-day program the other day, and she happened to say something that like was really relevant for this question. She just said it offhandedly. She said, the three R's are hierarchical. Now, for me, I don't know what it was about the way she worded that, but it just kind of fit suddenly. It gave me a framework to that question. So, you know, do we need money? The first R, reduce. I would say here's one of the reasons why at least we don't need as much money. Reverse that materialism. We're taught to measure our success, measure our family's happiness by how much stuff we have, a bigger house, the newest um, video games, the, you know, just stuff and stuff. Reverse that. It's actually a very weak state to be in, to need all this stuff. What are we trying to fill? You know, even even in our culture, when we imagine our heroes, you know, our warriors, we don't imagine people with, like, a whole lot of stuff. We imagine people that know how to do without stuff. So I'd say turn that upside-down truth around. Reverse that materialism. Take pride in how little you can get away with, how light you can travel. Like, how strong are you? <clears throat> how knowledgeable are you? Because a strong, knowledgeable person doesn't need a lot of stuff to boost them up. Um, another thing that you can start doing is, you know, we're, we're in this information age. We're, we're just inundated with information. We can also use this to our benefit, even though for the most part, I don't like the effects of all this information we're inundated with. But there's something to be said for checking out a YouTube video and doing more do-it-yourself stuff. Instead of being helpless, you know, check out a video. Can you fix that plumbing problem in your house? Can you work on that, that minor thing on your vehicle? Um, even though vehicles continuously are, are being made more complicated, so we can't work on things, but there are still some things. <clears throat> the library, huge resource. Um, there's so much to be said for the library. For one thing, it's a place you can loiter. Um, <laughs> it's amazing when you start like trying to loiter places and realize that you have to pay just to exist. You have to pay to exist in your own house. You have to pay when you go out on town. Um, you're even like most places, if you don't like break some laws, if you want to go in the woods, you're supposed to pay to go camping. Like you can, you can take a little walk, but you better get out unless you paid. <laughs> so a library is one of the few beautiful places you don't have to pay. You can, you've got all these books at your fingertips, and if they don't have those books, you can enter library loan for a very cheap library card. Um, videos and free classes. So some of these skills that we're trying to reclaim with our scavenging and our freakinism, knitting, crochet, many others are offered at local libraries. And you can just sign up for them, not pay anything, and just learn these skills. And each one of these skills um, gives you more independence. You're less reliant on the culture. Hmm. So you might think, like, I don't give a crap about knitting. You know, that's something old ladies do. <laughs> but the fact is, a lot of old ladies aren't doing it anymore. And if you have that skill... You don't need to, like, beg somebody to, like, make you a little pair of socks. You can make your own damn pair of socks. <laughs> it's actually a very masculine, manly, uh, powerful thing to do. Um, 
So yeah, just reducing. And then the next R, the next hierarchical R, reuse. So here we get into scavenging, upcycling. We've done a couple podcasts on upcycling, um, upcycle creations, part one and two, um, taking things and turning them into other things. So that really helps you boycott consumerism. I can make a blanket out of plastic bags. That's a pretty awesome warm blanket, so I don't have to go buy a blanket. I can make a dog bed. I can make a backpack. I can make a poncho. Um, I can make stoves out of things like tuna fish cans and cardboard and melted wax from uh, candles I find in the dumpster. Um, just the list goes on and on of what you can do with litter to upcycle it. And each one of these things is an empowering skill. It gives you freedom because you are 100% using something that was discarded that was just going to help trash the environment and turning it into something useful. And because you've made that, the other side of it also helps the environment because now you don't have to buy it. Um, can't say enough about upcycling. Great. And recycling, you know, that's kind of the last one. Eh, um, Recycling is probably better than just throwing it in a landfill, but I'm not a big proponent of recycling. Um, let's see, doing without money. We've also got roadkill. You know, there's animals being hit by cars every day, and I used to call this karma-free meat, um, even though it's not really if you think about the culture we're involved in. But at least you didn't have to kill another animal. You know, in a world where everything is already so stressed, um, there's these animals being hit by cars, and if you know how to evaluate roadkill, which is not that hard, um, you can learn a lot of very practical skills, including how to skin, how to dress an animal, field dress it, um, just the anatomy of an animal. Plus, you've got all this meat that, if people are so worried about health, this is some of the healthiest meat you're going to find. It's not raised on a farm. There's no chemicals in it. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of roadkill. Um, foraging. Um, no matter how much they try to control us, they can't control all the wild plants that we can eat. So adding that to your diet, free, adds more freedom to you. Gorilla gardening, you know, there's free classes on how to garden. Learning how to do that, and I would say at the same time, like, why not fight the uh, land ownership ethic, this whole idea of that we can own the earth. Why not sneak some of those vegetables in places like at the edges of parks where the exotic invasives already are? Maybe somebody else gets some of your vegetables, but... Hell, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> um, and I'd say another thing that is helpful is reversing taboos um, to if we need money. Um, to not need money, I've had to reverse a lot of taboos. For instance, the taboo of not eating trash. You know, like I said, I used to be embarrassed when I'd get go in the the dumpster, but now I realize everybody's stark raving mad. You know, we've got this this infectious disease, so the peer pressure doesn't bother me whatsoever. I know that you know they just don't get it, and I've had to reverse that taboo. So now I'm actually proud of the things other people would be ashamed of. Roadkill is another one. Big stigma about roadkill. You know, you picture the old toothless hillbilly with a shovel scraping up some skunk. Um, but there's a reason why we think that. That is taught to us by consumer culture. Mm -hmm. They don't want us to be proud of the independence we gain from using roadkill because that's a person that's not consuming as much. So I've learned to be very proud of that. And the people that might look at me like, oh, you eat roadkill? Screw them. They're helpless sheep. They're consumers. Like, they should be ashamed. And one day, if they wake up, they will be ashamed of that. And they'll be eating roadkill with me. Um, I'd say also, you know, learn about hunting, trapping, and fishing. Um, these are skills that, you know, especially fishing. You can just walk around any lake shore and, like, pick up fishing gear. Um, and 
here's a perfect opportunity for that meditation, you know. Fishing is a lot of patience. Bring that silence back into your life. At the same time, you're seeing if you can catch a fish, learning how to do it. I'm not too crazy about hunting and trapping at the moment because things are so much under stress. I, I hesitate to add more stress to the, the animal world. Um, but at the same time, when do you learn these skills? Mm-hmm. We don't live in a tribe that teaches these skills. So I'd say take a gun safety class, you know, like learn about hunting, learn about trapping, and maybe at least experience it enough to have some guide because these skills one day might help you gain that independence. Um, and I would turn the question back on you at this point. Your question was, how do we, do we need money and can we have a meaningful existence without work? What do you mean by work? I guess in the term, in terms of what we do in society today, uh, like going to a job where we're kind of working for the man or supposedly working for ourselves, even though we have to play the game, that type of work. Well, yeah, I think this is part of our our brainwashing. We think of work as employment, like you clock in someplace, you got to be someplace at a certain kind of time, you got to provide a service to make money. Um, I would say you can have a meaningful existence without that. I would say with confidence you can. Um, But it's not exactly a life of loafing. There is work to be done. Uh, Scavenging is work. But it's, for me, and I think for a lot of people, because you're escaping society, you're escaping this madness, it's joyful work. Um, And I'd say there's a lot less of it. So all these things that bring you joy, I mean, most of us have something that we can think of that we would do even if we didn't get paid for it. And if all you can think of is playing a video game, I am sorry. Like, get more free time in your life. You'll probably find something even more satisfying than escaping uh, reality. (laughs) Escaping society is almost the antithesis of escaping reality because the society is why we want to escape reality. Um, So, yeah, so just, you know, what would you do if you had all this free time? You'd probably find things like we do, you know, that are meaningful to us. We played tennis yesterday. Um, does that work? I don't know, but it feels good. It's a good use of time. And a couple podcasts we have in this vein that uh, kind of follow up on the freaking stuff is episode two, the truly mobile home, you know, like minimizing, moving into your vehicle, how to live in a vehicle. On to episode 28, homeless versus houseless, rethinking about that giant house we're taught we need and what that means. Um, and for me, when I start this path of freaganism, Um, After I'm harassed by enough enough cops at a dumpster, (laughs) after I see enough locks on dumpsters, this leads me to anarchism. I start thinking about um, why that is. Oh, man. So the media would have us believe that anarchism is lawlessness. Anarchism leads to chaos. How true is that? Um... I would say, let's see, defining anarchism. Teresa's grabbing the dog. So, funny thing is, when you define anarchism, it, uh, I've done this, I've seen, like, Facebook groups, you know, that are supposedly anarchist Facebook groups. Anarchists can be some of the most contentious bastards that you can imagine. I mean, (laughs) it's ironic how often anarchists will try to lay down the law. And say, no, this is what anarchism is. Um, To me, um, I looked up the the definition of anarchism, and on Google it said, 
Belief in the abolition of all government and the organization of society on a voluntary, cooperative basis without recourse to force or compulsion. I was expecting to kind of not like the definition, but actually I kind of like that definition. Um, That's basically what I think anarchism is in a nutshell. And um, I think any term, like, if it doesn't become you, if you don't flex it to fit yourself, you've sucked the life out of it. If it's just some dead word with some dead definition that never changes, what the hell good is it? So for me, you know, my anarchism might look different than someone else's, and I'm fine with that. I don't care if they don't respect my anarchism. I still respect it. Um, and as I was saying with Freeganism, like this is step three, the, the second negative. Step back to look at a bigger picture from Freeganism. What is the structure behind all this waste? Um, you know, you're starting to boycott it. So what government process, what way of life is empowered um, that creates this situation? And as you asked, you know, that the, the media would have us believe that anarchism is lawlessness, I'd say who are the outlaws? Um I'd say by any sane definition of what a law is, like a natural law, not just some arbitrary thing invented by the powerful to serve the powerful, um, we, our culture, are the biggest lawbreakers. We've obviously broken laws in ecology um, by the way we live. We're breaking laws of caretaking. We're breaking laws of taking care of our young. Um, I can't think of a more outlaw culture than ours. So if by our culture's standards, I am an outlaw, again, upside down truth. I take pride in that. Did you mention about the uh, outlaw, like the word? No, what do you want to say about it? Like the laws of nature, like the laws of how the universe works. We're we're outside of that in this culture. No, I did kind of in a way, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, And heroes and villains, you know, who are the heroes and villains? Look at the heroes we're taught. I even talked about this in uh, our podcast movies. Um, You know, our our heroes are generally people who protect our civilization, protect the status quo, even though our civilization, as I just said, are some of the worst outlaws imaginable. We're destroying an entire planet. These are the people most in need of being stopped. The world is not in jeopardy from bank robbers or even serial killers for that matter. We're in je- it's in jeopardy from the most powerful, normal, supposedly, people on our planet. Um, and look at the, the people we're, we're taught to call villains. Look at 9-11, for instance. Um, you know, and anybody who had somebody die in the, the 9-11, the, the World Trade Center, I'm not... Um, I'm not saying this to upset you, you know. I'm, I'm, I wish people weren't dying, but the way we're taught to look at this picture is so incomplete. We have destabilized these people's homes. We are exploiting them all over the place. We lie to them over and over. And so for a small group of people from a third world country to be able to organize and pull off an attack like that on the superpower of the world... Hmm. I don't know. There's something heroic about that. They stood up to us. And as bad as I feel for the people that died in 9-11, look at the numbers. How many people have died in their countries by bombs dropped by the U.S. on them? Do we feel bad about them? Um, This whole hero, villains, outlaw, um, lawlessness thing is completely upside down. So, you know, the question itself, I think, is loaded with propaganda. Mm. Um, 
This whole, whole Orwellian, one right way to live has never worked. We're trying to impose one set of values, one way to live on every culture in the world. Um, look at voting. You know, we, we don't have small enough tribes anymore to make decisions by consensus, where we all talk about it until we feel like we agree. It can't be done. We're too big. There's too many different people, so we vote. And what does voting lead to? It leads to, if it works, which a lot of times that doesn't even work, a majority getting their way and the minority who might have had legitimate grievances, who can't get on board with this other idea. They're just told, eh, well, that's the law. And if you break it, it doesn't. we don't care if you believe it or not. You will be punished. So you're going to obey because you're afraid. It doesn't work. That's why we still have all this crime and all this this contentiousness in our politics. Um, Look at crime. You know, why do we have crime? Crime is not something that's normalized in any other tribe beyond our culture that is now spread all over the globe. These are people who are not being served by their culture, whether they're stealing a loaf of bread to feed their kids or whether they're feeding a drug habit. Why do they have the drug habit? They're not being served by our culture. They're miserable. They're broken people. Um... There's, there's just so many signs that this isn't working. Protest. Protest, especially now, is global. There's people all over the world, and it's not a new thing. There's been revolutions and protests, the whole story of our culture. So this one right, one right way to live doesn't work. As Daniel Quinn says, there is no one right way to live. I posted that on Facebook one time and had a bunch of liberals like it. And then I questioned him. I said, have you really thought about what that means? <laughs> like, are you okay with, like, the Klan meeting over there? Like... Or do you think you have the one right way to live, just like other people did? I mean, to me, one right, not one right way to live means tribes. That's what it leads to. That's, that's the whole picture is you do what works for your group of people, and I'll do what works for my group of people. Otherwise, you fall into the same old Orwellian big brother bullshit, which is I'm going to impose my set of values on you, and you're going to do it, or I'm going to hurt you. Um, that's tyranny. Again, we get into the rewriting history. I brought that up earlier. Um, propaganda. We're, we're taught so much propaganda and upside-down truths. For instance, the government, um, one of the truths is the government, or one of the upside-down truths, the reversals of a truth, is that the government actually increases what it claims to stop. We're taught that the government gives us order. You look at the world, and... It is in a state of disorder like it's never been in. We're told that the government protects us from crime. Do you feel safe? Um, I don't know of anybody that really feels that protected from crime. All these things that the government does for us, it does not. There's this quote by Emma Goldman, who's this really great anarchist from the early 20th century, and she says, The most absurd apology for authority and law is that they serve to diminish crime. Aside from the fact that the state is itself the greatest criminal, breaking every natural and written law, stealing in the form of taxes, killing in the form of war and capital punishment, it has come to an absolute standstill in coping with crime. It has failed utterly to destroy or even minimize the horrible scourge of its own creation. So, yeah, like a lot of these things the government is supposedly protecting us from, it's causing. I've, I've been told, like, God, if the government shut down, it would just erupt in violence. We are living in the most violent time. We have bombs that can blow up cities. Um, bombs are dropped on other countries every day. Um, these are the most violent times the earth has witnessed. And the government is a powerful force. Um, without government, 
we had skirmishes. You know, it's not a complete lack of violence. I'm not saying we all ran around picking daisies and skipping holding hands. But it's certainly not the scale of violence we witness now. Some more upside-down truths really quick. Um, our modern medicine, you know, that it takes care of illness. But we neglect to look at the culture that is creating these illnesses. Even the illnesses that have been in our culture for a long time, like smallpox, measles, these are because of the way we live. We capture animals. Mm. We take them out of their natural environment, and then we enclose them and have them close to our homes. These are mutated animal viruses that we would not have suffered had it not been for this way of life that has been evolving for 10,000 years now, the way of life that led to the way we live right now. When we came to the Americas, and when I say we, um, the colonists from Europe, they didn't run into any diseases, um, excepting, and this is debatable, syphilis, that is said to be the one disease that might have gone back to Europe. But we brought over countless diseases. Ask yourself, again, this questioning, why did we have all the diseases? What does that say? Uh, another upside-down truth, um, that we're intelligent, more intelligent than these primitive people, more intelligent than the other creatures. And yet we're the one creature that is so miserable that we can't find a way to stop destroying the planet because anything else is like taking away an addiction. We're scared to do without it. Um, and the fact is, and we don't like to talk about this as much, we don't know how to do without it. Mm -hmm. So how are we so much smarter than these indigenous people that know how to live on their own planet without destroying the planet? We don't know how to do it. We don't know how to capture our own food. We don't know how to build our own shelters anymore. Um, and yet we're taught. You know, it's kind of the underlying message in so many classes and so many movies that we're somehow intelligent. Helping the homeless. You know, we talked about this in Homeless versus uh, Houseless. Helping the homeless be like us when there's already too many of us living this way that's sucking the world dry. It makes no sense. This is an upside-down truth. Um, more technology, and we're less satisfied. Depression. And if you don't want to know what anxiety. I mean... What about it? Well, just depression and anxiety are... Speak on a cracker! I'm just saying that there's more depression and anxiety in today's society. Why? We should be happier. Mm -hmm. We have all this technology to make life easier. Yeah. And more tech, less satisfied. Um, if you don't know what I mean, ask yourself if you think there's any chance that next year, whatever products come out, that they'll stop. This is the best technology we've ever had in the history of mankind, we're taught. How come it's not good enough? How come you know for a fact that the year after that, they're going to have to upgrade? Where's the satisfaction? When do we get to be satisfied and say, ah, nailed it. Wow, it's good. <laughs> so more defense, you know, we're taught like we've got all, oh my God, cops everywhere. We've got military, they're armed to the teeth. We've got bombs that should, are a deterrent for other countries because we could blow up cities for our defense. Again, do you feel safe? Hmm. We're less safe than ever. We're scared of the very things that are meant to protect us, much less the things they're supposed to protect us from. I lock my doors. Yeah, and one last, one last uh, upside down, but by far it's not, we could go on and on with this list, is the easier modern life. We're taught that we have all these conveniences, and it was grueling hard work back in tribal life. Um, but thank God we're saved from that because we have modern technology. And yet, look how busy we are. Again, that free time. When's the last time that you just made time and really could embody it, something that was familiar to just say, ah. I just feel like doing nothing and I can do it because I feel like doing it right now, so I'm going to do it. We're the busiest culture on the face of the planet. We're working our asses off. Even our recreation is work. So these upside-down truths um, 
I think I went off on a tangent. I can't even remember the question at this point, but <laughs> let me finish up this tangent. Um, it reminds me back to this this George Orwell 1984 doublespeak. It's meant to be confusing. And I don't even think it's not like conspiracy to me. It's not like, uh, you know, Mwahaha, we're going to confuse them, although I think that is part of the strategy. The people that are doing this to us are also confused. This is the insanity. It goes deeper than conspiracy. It's an illness that we all share, that nothing makes sense. And part of the constant confusion that keeps us helpless and dependent. We don't know anything. We're taught every time that we think about one of these things and it doesn't make sense. Smarter people than us must know things that we don't. <laughs> they don't. It actually doesn't make sense. Um, and finally, one of the reasons that I support anarchism, why it is the next step after freeganism, why boycotting and just waiting for things to fall apart doesn't, doesn't fulfill me is I still think we need to fight. Our primary weapon is boycotting, is not needing this culture, is getting free of it, not feeding it. But when I hear that 200 species are going extinct today, by the time I go to bed tonight, 200 species that have been alive on this planet, and I know it's not, you know, it ebbs and flows, it's a uh, average, but roughly 200 species that have been here since the dawn of time, that have been my, my relatives on this planet, sharing this beautiful planet with me, they're erased, they're gone. They're never coming back. They're dead. And I'm not just talking about individuals. I'd be alarmed about 200 dogs being killed every day. I'm talking about species. Um, I think about that last passenger pigeon. I think about what it's like to be every one of these species. There's a story that somebody's not hearing that we're not noticing of the last one. Some, some individual looks around and it's the last one. And I can't even imagine what that feels like. And that's happening every day 200 times. And I think about... Two football fields of forest falling every minute. I've also heard every second. But the point is, uh, two football fields of forest are falling that quickly. Our forest is being destroyed. When I hear these facts, that doesn't lead me back just to twiddle my thumbs and think, oh, well, I'll just wait it out. Civilization's falling anyway. That makes me feel like more needs to happen. Um, and that's the anarchism. That's the fight. Follow up the boycotting with the fight. So many people want peace to be the answer, but can nonviolence really accomplish anything at this point? And if violence is necessary, do you think enough support can be rallied to turn the tides? I'd say theoretically, yes to both. Um, I think that um, nonviolence can accomplish anything at this point, and I think enough support can be rallied to turn the tides if we chose violence because of the same reason. We have the power of choice. So no matter how unlikely it is, I hate it when people say people aren't going to do that because all you're telling me is you're one of the people that are choosing not to. I agree that the odds are against people doing these things. But the tragic thing, one of the many tragic things, is how easy it would be. We could all choose right now to do something completely different. It doesn't happen. We're conditioned. We're frightened. But it could be that easy. We're talking about choice. It's that easy. Um, I think nonviolence is a sane first response. Like I really, I don't think Gandhi was wrong. I don't think Martin Luther King Jr. was wrong. I don't think Peace Pilgrim was wrong. But with those facts I just gave about the 200 species dying every day and, and the state of the world and uh, how things are looking right now, I think it's time to reevaluate. 
That was a good first response. That's what sane people do. They don't just go and start killing people. They try other things. But I think it's time we've got to ask ourselves, is it working? And if it's not, or if it's barely working, is that good enough when 200 species are being erased from the planet every day? Is something more not required from us? Um, because we live in a culture... Don't forget what we're addressing. We live in a culture that claims a monopoly on violence. In other words, these people are using violence against the planet and other people every day, not just as a event. It is business as usual. Um, we even have these ugly fucking terms like casualties of war. Look at the term, casual. There's nothing fucking casual mm -hmm. about it. That's madness. That's the Wetico talking. Um, collateral damage. Collateral damage. What a nice, calm word. You know, it sounds so pretty. These people can do anything to protect their investments. A cop, how many times a day do you hear about cops abusing their power? And I'm not saying all cops are bad. That's not what this is about. It's about that a cop can use violence if they believe it's necessary. But if you get in a fight with your buddy at a bar, um, the bar, like, you're getting hauled into court. There's no good reason to use violence in our culture unless you're one of these people that has claims a monopoly on it. Look at when, we, when I hear about gun rights. I'm not... I'm not for gun regulations because if we were talking about getting rid of guns altogether, hell yeah, I'd support that. But what we're talking about is supporting more of this monopoly on violence. Now more of us as citizens are not allowed to have guns. Even even now we're not allowed to use them. You use a gun, you're in deep shit. Um, but soldiers can use them against strangers that their government has deemed need to be shot, mostly civilians, every day. Um, I don't agree with this monopoly on violence. So... That's one of my arguments against gun control. One of the things that I think would work that could rally us to accomplish anything is to recognize that we all have a common enemy. Um, I got in trouble on Facebook a while back because I said there was a Klan rally, and I said, I wish if I'd been there that I could have gone up to him and said, look, I see you are people with strong beliefs and willing to stand up to your beliefs because you don't stand up in that white robe in Hillsboro and not know that people are going to hate you so these are people that believe what they believe so strongly that they're willing to stand up against that. I don't agree with what the Klan stands for at all. But people that stand up, what if we could find something just long enough to end the deeper problem, the civilization, the thing that's destroying the planet we all share? People in the Ku Klux Klan have a vision of how they want the world to look, just like people in Black Lives Matter have a vision. But guess what? If there's no world, nobody gets anything. Mm. We're as stupid as anybody the way we're fighting amongst ourselves. There are certain people, like they say, with names and addresses, that are directly destroying the planet we share. But we're so busy quibbling over who's a Nazi, who's a fascist, who's this, who's that. Whose statue is up on campus? <laughs> well, they fucking laugh because we're ignoring the common enemy we all have. And this is something that's been repeated tragically in history over and over. Um, our culture is kind of orchestrated to allow this, to encourage it in subtle ways. Because the people that are behind the scenes, I mean, let's face it, it's the best favor we can do for them to not acknowledge our common enemy. Um, and when I talk about violence, I'm talking about an opportunistic guerrilla warfare. The reason why this is not step one fighting is because we're talking about going up against a culture with a monopoly on violence that has refined violence and showed they're willing to use any measure of violence against anybody to maintain their power. Now, for you to just declare war on a culture like that, it's probably a suicide mission. If you're just going to go in and 
you know, start using violence. They've got more violence than you. They could squash you like a bug. But as I said, we also live in an unwieldy culture. It's gotten too big for its britches. They can't, they can't tie, they can't close all the gaps. So opportunistic guerrilla warfare, there will be times when you can fight, not just boycott, but fight. I'd say whether you believe in guns or not, learn how to use them because we don't own a gun. I don't like guns, but I can imagine many scenarios that if there's a gun around, I'm going to wish I knew how the hell to use that thing Um, because they've got them and they've used them to great offense. When you say, when people say violence doesn't work, of course it does. That's why the world looks the way it does. It has worked for the wrong people. And if a lot of these same people tell us to, you know, look to the indigenous people as role models. Indigenous people almost uniformly, when they get pushed to a certain point, will fight for what they love. They don't make a lifestyle out of, like, violence every day like we do. We are the violent ones, not these indigenous people. And fighting for what you love is a natural thing. This uber-pacifism we're taught, that we there is never an excuse for violence, I believe that's part of the conditioning of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, learn self-defense, like hand-to-hand combat. You don't need to know kung fu or any of that crap. Just know how to, you know... Don't throw a punch like a cowboy with your knuckles. Like, use the heel of your hand. Use the knife edge of your hand. Learn the squishy parts on the human body. You know, there are times when you're going to have to get really, when you might have to get really savage and know what you're doing to, to get out of certain situations. And if you can learn how to make an explosive, improvise something from, you know, as complicated as Ted Szymski's letter bombs to as simple as a Molotov cocktail, there may be times that you will need to use it. And if that sounds violent, if you recoil at the thought of using something like that, keep in mind that you are benefiting from a culture that uses violence on a scale much, 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 much larger than anything you could possibly do by implementing all these things I just said to maintain your standard of living. Mm. I'm done. Damn. Mic drop. Uh, I think every time you said something and concluded, I've said, damn. Um, (laughs) Because we were just talking about how pacified the United States seems to be at this point when the rest of the world is in such turmoil. And my next question is kind of a reflection of that. Uh, We were recently reading an interview of John Zerzan by Derek Jensen. And I believe it was Zerzan that mentioned the alienation of alienation. How does that tie in with these steps that you're speaking of now? Yeah, that was a really interesting interview in uh, John Zerzan's book, Running on Emptiness. Um, Actually, I'm not sure how it does tie in or even if it does. What does that mean to you? Why was that interesting enough for you to ask that question? Well, I guess it it kind of harkens back to the freeganism because our culture is creating an alienation from our our natural state. And if we're able to alienate the alienation, then we can kind of step away. We can abandon it. Um, And I suppose anarchism is also a part of that too, because we're turning away from what exists, from what is alienating us, from what we are, what we truly are. Yeah, that idea, that phrase is still kind of swimming around in my head and percolating, so I don't have a lot to say on that yet. I feel like I I still don't know what to do with the alienation of alienation, which is the way ideas often work in my head. Um, I would just say to add to the kind of start closing up this anarchist step, um, I'd encourage people to read Derek Jensen. Derek Jensen is a really 
good, inspiring author that brings a lot of these um, topics up and doesn't take violence completely off the table. I'd say John Zerzan is one of my favorite um, anarchist writers. And um, yeah, I've learned through reading about anarchism that I am apparently what's called an anarcho-primitivist, which Derek Jensen and John Zerzan both are. So um, which leads me to Emma Goldman. She's another interesting person to read about. And a lot of the other largely Russian-influenced anarchists of her times in the, the late 19th century and early 20th century, it's interesting to read about the the history of this um, movement because it used to be about class hierarchy, you know, like we need to divide the goods more equally. It's not right that some people have so much while other people are kept oppressed. But Largely, I think, due to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in the 60s, the environmental movement blew up, and that kind of brought up the the new question, should any of us be eating this Mm. much of the cake? Um, Which leads to anarcho-primitivism, you know, just a different way to live that it's not about class hierarchy. It's not about a way to live that divvies up um, all the goods better, but how do we not take so much? How do we not need all these goods? Um, Some of the podcasts we've done, we actually have not done much on anarchism yet, but we hope to do more. But I'd say episodes 9, Drain on Society, and episode 10, if I didn't have kids, are are a couple of our more anarchist themes, by my way of looking at it, podcast. And uh, I'd say, like, that takes care of, first step, identify the problem, wet it go. Two negatives, which is step two, freeganism or scavenging. Step three, anarchism. And that leads us to our two positives. So we're starting to fight this culture, this wetico. Now what? Hmm. Um, and that leads us to animism, which I think is the most important step. Why is animism so important in these five steps? Well, I think animism is what we've lost. When we talk about wetico, I think wetico, the polar opposite of it, is animism. And if you're not familiar with animism, it's this anthropological term that's kind of an umbrella term for um, the beliefs of indigenous cultures all over the world. There's a lot of diversity in ceremony and details, but it's interesting the things that are common themes shared by people before our civilization that work, that fed a sustainable culture. Um, Part of that ability is we've lost the ability to listen. Derek Jensen talks a lot about this in A Language Older Than Words. Um, Imagine how we'd live if we thought trees screamed when we cut them. if we thought the earth felt felt it when we dug a furrow, um, we've become a very deaf, masturbatory culture. All we can hear are our own human voices, and we believe nothing else speaks. And that is not accidental. That is a foundation stone of our culture, because if that was gone, none of the rest of it would be possible. I think part of the thing that let... Wetico in to our culture 10,000 years ago was some atrophying of animism. Hmm. And we'll never know exactly how that happened. Um, but the more I learn about animism, the more I realize, wow, this is exactly the opposite of everything Wetico is. Um, it's a different definition of self. Animism teaches us that, like we're taught in our culture, what, what, do, you, what do you call yourself? This little body, this little lonely body that you got to take care of. It's your responsibility. You're all by yourself. Um, your lungs, your organs. Um, It's a very lonely, powerless place to be, and it really, again, serves the status quo, the hierarchy, the powerful, if we're dependent. 
Now, animism teaches me a much bigger sense of self. The trees are my lungs. We're all in this together. There are tribes upon tribes upon tribes. Um, a healthy animist culture is a tribe. So I have my tribe of people, and that's my sense of self. I can't benefit while somebody in my tribe doesn't. That's that's just not, it's not accepted, and it's not something I would want to do. I would take no pride in it. I would feel ashamed of myself. And then I recognize that all these tribes are connected to other tribes. We need the deer tribe. They need to be healthy because our fates are intertwined. So the sense of self gets huge in animism. And I think that is the truer sense of self. Mm. Um, deep ecology. It's an interesting subject that's starting to explore our relationship with the natural world in more of these terms. Um, like I like how they're questioning even things like being the caretaker of the earth because doesn't that still keep us separated and on top? What if we're not on top? That is a profound idea in our culture, that we're not on top. It's not our decision how to master the world or run it. It's not ours to run. Um, I think animism reminds me of the non-human tribes, and I'm trying to change my language like to use the word people a lot, because I think this is powerful. When you talk about the tree people, um, it reminds me, it's a way of reminding me that these are people too. These are sentient beings, the, the stone people, the wind people. Um, just to remind myself of the vastness of this magical universe and that they all have a specific kind of intelligence. I hate these studies that's like a crow is as intelligent as a 10-year-old. This is definitely not animism. A crow is a genius at being a crow. Um, a tree is has its own intelligence. We have our own unique form of human intelligence and we've abused it, but it's not something to be, I think, ashamed of by itself. I think the same intelligence is really a powerful, magical part of being a human being, even if we have learned how to misuse it in our culture. It's part of our sickness. But it's not the only intelligence. And I love the way animist cultures look to other um, tribes, other peoples of the tree tribe, animal tribe, etc., as teachers. It's said that they remember their original teachings and that when we lose our way, we should look to them. I can't think of a time that that message is not is more poignant than now. Um, when we look at what the trees do, how the squirrels live so simply, um, how all the creatures around us are profound teachers of how to do the most important thing we could know, which isn't to build rockets, which isn't to learn about calculus, which isn't to um, please our bosses. It's simply how to live on our own fucking planet. It should be the easiest thing, and it's the one thing that we've forgotten the most of. So looking to those teachers. Um, and in that vein that everything speaks, you know, that listening, that deafness. That's something that I really try to impress upon kids now. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why it's so important to bring back. Another thing, and like I said, these, these aren't strictly progressive, like you're walking down a one-way road. They feed the things before them. So this sense of self, this redefinition of self and animism also helps me start to see that what I've been taught to call death is a lie. There is no death as I've been taught to understand it. I am part of something so much bigger. So when this body fades away, already my sense of self has expanded to recognize that the lungs of my body are also the trees and the wind that's been here forever. I'm 66% water. That water has been here forever and it's going to be here after me. Um, 
And the list goes on and on, you know, the things that are part of what I call me, but I've been taught to call me just this little tiny bit of myself. Mm. Me is actually so much bigger and that me does not die. Now think about why we don't fight. If we're anarchists and we've decided it's time for a new plan, what keeps us from, why, why aren't we reading on the news every day about factories burning down that are polluting our water? It's because of this diminished sense of self we're taught. We're scared. This is our one shot. We don't want to waste it. But what if we realize we're so much bigger than that, that this life is just a message, it's a ride, and we better dedicate it to what we believe in, what we love, because this isn't the end. We are the trees. We are the wind. We, we outlive this. This little thing you attached a name to might go away, but so what? What was that anyway? This bigger thing that has no name, this great mystery, doesn't die. I love this quote by uh, Daniel Quinn. And I don't know why. There's a lot of people that have great things to say about these topics, but I kept thinking about Daniel Quinn for this. <laughs> he says, To each is given its moment in the blaze, its spark to be surrendered to another when it is sent, so that the blaze may go on. None may deny its spark to the general blaze and live forever. Each is sent to another some day. You are sent. You are on your way. I am sent. To the wolf or the lion or the vulture or the grasses, I am sent. My death is the life of another. And I will stand again in the wind-swept grasses and look through the eyes of the fox and take the air with the eagle and run in the track of the deer. Daniel Quinn said that in his book, Tales of Adam. This is the essence of what I'm talking about, about no death. It's a recognition, and Daniel Quinn was also someone who's very passionate about animism. It's a recognition that our life is much bigger than we're taught. And that gives us much more power than we're taught to, that we have. Um... I'd say other parts of why animism, I call it the most important part, is we need this gratitude and ritual. This is part of what we're missing. Um, gratitude, we need to give thanks for things. It's so easy to get caught in a very depressing mindset and think about everything we've lost, and it's important to remember that. But also think about 20 years from now how bad things might be, and people might envy what we have, that we could still go to a park, that we could still see trees and sit under a tree and feel the rain, that the rain didn't burn us that we could sit in a, a rain shower. So part of what helps us get back to a sane reality is gratitude, counting our blessings. And ritual can be a dead thing. It can have a, uh, a bad connotation, but ritual can also be a way for us to make a habit out of small things, to just bring in this reality, this other paradigm, the story that we've lost. Um, sit spots are a ritual I used to do. I just go out in the woods to the same place every day and sit. Um, it was a, a profound way to practice listening, to just start noticing the non-human tribes around me that I didn't even know I was ignoring. When I blow on a fire, um, anytime I blow on a fire or a campfire, my hobo stove, I make a little ritual, and this kind of happened by accident, that I do four breaths, four breaths for the four directions. I don't know why I started doing this. A, a lot of times it's not even something I consciously do, but it's another thing that brings me back to the directions, the winds. It ties me in. It's a little thing, but it's helpful. Um, there are sun-honoring songs. We sing this Cherokee sun-honoring song at camp, One Day Yahoo. And that's something that just reminds me that this day is not something to be taken for granted. It reminds me that there were people that were here before us that sang this song, that these trees, the ancestors of these very plants and animals around me, maybe listened to these very words honoring the day, honoring the sun, um, and that this land is much older than my ancestors coming over here and colonizing it. It, it connects me. 
Um, and I never put food in the trash. I, I try to never put food in the trash. I remind myself that it's organic stuff, so I'll always clean food. I'll put it on the grass. I'll put it somewhere. But to me, it's sacrilegious. It's an insult to put food in the trash, even though you're taught not to feed the wildlife. But, you know, I remind myself that this wildlife is already affected by humans. They're already scavenging food. So I'm not trying to hand feed them or anything, but I don't think it's the big bad thing that we're taught by the forest rangers. So just little things like that that help us connect. These are the rituals I'm talking about. Some of the ways that you can start to learn to listen again. Um, I would start with things like weather, the wind. Pay attention to the wind. Check in with the wind. Um, You can learn the beginnings of what the wind talks about easily. In our area, when the wind comes from the east, it means that rain might be coming. When the wind comes from the west, it means that the weather's probably not going to change. If the wind comes from the north, it means the weather might be getting drier and colder. And if the wind comes from the south, it might be getting wetter and warmer. Now, this is a very practical, like, meteorological way to listen to the wind. I believe the wind brings much more profound and personal messages than that. But it gets you started. It gets you started paying attention to feeling like you have some measure of success of speaking with the wind. Um, Gathering plants. Check in with our, what I say on episode 23, Foraging, Hobo's Garden of Eaton Part 2, when I talk about Robin Kimmerer's Potawatomi Honorable Harvest. Um, Talking to plants when you gather them, interacting with plants is a beautiful way to start bringing this animism back. Um, Bird language. Not just recognizing what calls go to what bird, but actually what they're talking about. This is actually something that's been refined somewhat um, by John Young in his great book, Uh, What the Robin Knows. So check out What the Robin Knows by John Young and learn more about burn burn language, which you can practice by going to your sit spot. These things tie together. Tracking. We have learned, I've heard a lot of things about literacy that we've actually had a lot of our animism robbed from us by the written word. Um, This is something that's been recognized and been a concern in animist cultures for a long time is when literacy gets introduced, these magic talking leaves We become a more masturbatory culture. We start just listening and reading our own words at the expense of hearing the words of our non-human neighbors. Um, Tracking is a way to get back into the true literacy. You know, we look at people and, oh, they're illiterate. There's poor people. And yet we forget that all we can do is read a damn book. They can read everything. Mm. They can read reality itself. Tracking is not confined to footprints. Um, Paul Resendez is a great author in regard to tracking. Um, he's got Tracking in the Art of Seeing, which is a good book on how to track, and he's also got a more philosophical book, The Wild Within, which draws a lot of parallels between our culture and some of the non-human cultures um, that's really fascinating. I also re- recommend um, Stokes' Guide to Animal Tracking and Behavior. It's my favorite one field guide for tracking, mainly because it focuses on sign tracking in the beginning, and I found that to be extremely useful. I'm always seeing holes in the ground and wondering, like, what made it. So it helps you with stuff like that. Scratches on trees because you're not always finding footprints. And Mark Elbrock, he is the final word on tracking. So, you know, he's written thick books. And if you want to learn anything about tracking, like, he's done such an extensive um, book on tracking that there's really nothing to add to it. He's got really thick books, so they're not field guides, not things you would take out in the field with you. Um I would also say another author that I highly recommend if you want to learn more about animism is an author named David Abram. 
and I especially recommend his first book, The Spell of the Sensuous. Um, he talks more about what I was talking about with literacy and the, the expense it has to our, our animism, our ability to talk to the natural world. Um, God, and there was something else about that book I was going to bring up. Now, if it comes back to me, it comes back to me. Um, another author is Tom Wessels, Reading the Forested Landscape, A Natural History of New England. This will really help you to start reading the, the forest itself as an integrated entity. Um, and it's really neat stuff. Tom Wessels, I don't know if he would uh, call himself an animist. There's nothing in, in the book that's specifically animist, but if you are trying to be a better animist, this is information and delivered in such a beautiful way that it'll really help you. And finally, Carlos Castaneda. Um, I was so focused on the mysticism of Carlos Castaneda the first time I read it that I completely missed how very animist it is, how sensuous it is, how it ties into non-human entities, even inorganic beings, and and your own body. Um, There's just lots of... uh, Animus Knowledge in the Teachings of Don Juan, written by Carlos Castaneda. And I love how just when you started talking about the wind and how to read the stories of the wind and the weather, it started raining. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think it's possible to escape society without animism? Well, again, this is step four, and I say it's the most important one, and so my answer to that is absolutely not. I do not think it is possible to escape society completely without animism. Um, Animism is not a religion, but it's a a story. It's the story that we embed ourselves in. It's more than a religion. A religion, I feel like, is a crutch for the lack of the animism in our culture. Hmm. Animism is something that if you asked indigenous people, what's your religion, they'd say, what the hell are you talking about? What's religion? They don't need it. Animism is both their religion and science. It's their world. It's the story that they participate in. It affects everything they do and think and say. Um, It is the new paradigm that we need to move into. Otherwise, we just rebuild this. You know, that's been a concern I've heard a lot of people say. It's like, so what if we have a big revolt and, like, tear down civilization? We'll just rebuild it again. This is why I think animism is so important. This is the thing that would keep us from rebuilding it. Um... There's this great scene in Kurt Vonnegut's book in Player Piano where they've had this big revolution. They've torn down all the machines, and they're kind of driving with maybe the last car with the last little bit of gas, checking out the countryside. And there's a group of people upriding a soda machine and trying to fix it. Oh, no. And so they're just shaking their heads like, oh, here we go again, because these people just want a soda, and they, you know, it's worth it to them to fix it. This is a big danger because... This is what Daniel Quinn talks about. I think a big division between Daniel Quinn and Derek Jensen. Derek Jensen says we need to tear down civilization. Daniel, did I say Derek Quinn? Derek Jensen said that. Derek Jensen, yeah. Daniel Quinn doesn't talk so much about a violent revolution as changing consciousness. <clears throat> I think there's a place for both. And here's the important part of the consciousness changing is if that doesn't happen somewhere along the way, um, we do just rebuild it. But... I don't think that's an excuse not to fight because there's not going to be any world left to fight for if we're waiting on everybody's consciousness to change. I hate hearing people say that it's so often used as an excuse to do nothing, to keep benefiting from a culture, the most violent culture on earth, by people who say, oh, I just, I think we should just wait for people to change consciousness. Um, They're forgetting about the 200 species dying every day or they're ignoring them. Um, 
So yeah, that's why I think it can't happen without animism. Animism is the original story that we came from that worked for three million years. It's what we can return to. It's our baseline. It's not some arbitrary like, oh, let's try this new form of government, like socialism or or something like that. Animism has been tested through time and still works in the few tribes that have not been screwed with by us. Um, So yeah, I think we need it. Yeah, I brought that up uh, mostly because it seems like like just in the climate of today, so many people are wrapped up in science and technology. It's almost, it's almost become a religion. I think it might be a religion to believe in technology. And so I'm just asking just to hear your opinion. Like if so many good things are coming from this science and technology, why can't we rely on science and technology to save us? What good things? Yeah, exactly. Well, that is the debate as far as uh, society goes. Like, are these good things or are they temporarily things that we've been brainwashed to think are good, but they're actually destroying the entire planet? Yeah, I think this is another upside-down truth we're taught in our culture. We're taught that science fixes problems, but any intelligent person that takes a close look at history realizes that science causes problems. If science fixes anything, what you always find is it's a problem that was caused by science to begin with, (laughs) and whatever fix it gives is never good enough because the next group of people are going to have to fix, usually through science, the problem caused by this current fix. Mm. Um, I've asked people, I've challenged people all over the place, like, tell me one good thing science does. And people talk about, well, science brings us all this information. We're inundated with information. We're the stupidest fucking culture on earth. We don't even know how to live on this planet. So this information, what we're calling intelligence and information, what good does it do other than help us participate in this culture? It certainly doesn't help us get out there and live a more sane life. Uh, I've heard modern medicine. But again, from Crohn's disease to cancer, we're talking about diseases that come from civilization, civilization that is empowered, fueled by our science, our technology. So, you know, every cure that we come up with, there's more diseases. And we wouldn't need the damn cure in the first place if we weren't living this way. Yeah, even the book that I'm reading for our uh, elimination diet mentioned lifestyle diseases. They are literally diseases that are caused by this way of life. Yeah, and when I started researching animism and getting more into that mindset and considering that, I started looking back at science, which I was taught is so objective um, and so fact-based as opposed to religion, and realizing that science is also faith-based. It's also a religion. Consider um, animal testing. By what right do we test animals? If you read Derek Jensen's book, A Language Older Than Words, he talks about experiments that were done on animals where they would sever the vocal cords because of the distracting vocal emissions. These are the scientists. These animals are screaming in pain as they're doing experiments on them. And these intelligent scientists can't even recognize what is happening. All they recognize is, oh, this is a reaction to the experiment we're doing, and it's very distracting, so let's sever the vocal cords. This is not something that gets closer to reality. Science um, has not brought us any further along in our perception of reality or our joy in life. Um, Science condenses everything into numbers. Many cultures 
actually had taboos against counting things because they believed it was a way of sort of, uh, what would I say, diminishing something. Mm. Um, I didn't understand what this meant until somebody described this article that was written about this South American um, tribe. And they said in the article that these people can't even count to two as a way to kind of like say they were stupid. Mm. But this one person was saying, well, the way they look at things, you hold up your two fingers the two fingers are not exactly alike. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they don't see the world that way. The world is endlessly diverse. There are no two fingers alike. Everything is unique, absolutely <laughs> unique. So to say those five people over there is to diminish the individuality of those five people. Don't we even use fingerprints to identify people because they're so unique? Yeah. <laughs> and consider like what even in our culture, you know, we have derogatory ways of saying like, oh, I'm just a number. They make a number. You know, everybody's just a number. We don't want to be numbers. We know it diminishes us. So why uh, rail against a culture that chooses not to? And they do just fine without them. Um, there are many things in science when you start looking that aren't just objective um, there are, uh, they choose a way of looking at things. For an instance, um, imagining everything's objective rather than subjective. It's an object. It's not a living being, even though depending on how you look at it, there's a lot of evidence, if you choose to see it, of the life flowing through everything. But that gives the scientists power. The way of trying to learn about things by caging things, robbing something of its freedom, and dissecting it. We need to cut it open to understand it. Um, <clears throat> That's not the only way to learn about things, but because science is a faith-based religion, it's sort of the the way they they believe based on faith to learn about things. An animist culture would not choose to learn about something that way because more important to them is the relationship with these entities. It, they wouldn't want to damage their relationship. If I want to get to know Teresa better, how do you think, like, what is it going to do to my relationship to lock her up someplace and then to, like, cut off something and dissect it? It's insanity. Um, so, yeah, yeah, part of my questioning of, uh, <laughs> losing my thread there, part of my questioning of science bringing us anything good and the whole objectifying, we live in an objectifying culture, the most objectifying culture to my knowledge that has ever been on the planet. Animist is completely subjectifying. Everything is alive. Everything is about the relationship and interaction, a, a conversation. In our culture, everything needs to be dead. I believe this is sort of a form of black magic we worked on ourselves. Because if you can see, if you can work this magic on yourself that everything is dead, it gives you power over it. You don't have to ask certain questions anymore. You can just cut it down. It's completely there for you. It's a resource. It's a resource, a natural resource. <clears throat> and this is powerful in the short term if all you want is selfish gratification but if you want a beautiful world to live on, a sustainable place for your children and grandchildren, it's completely useless. It's black magic. It's evil. Um, and there's no great mystery. You know, I believe that the vast bulk of this universe is unknowable by man. I don't believe you can dissect enough stuff, count enough stuff, measure enough stuff, or capture enough stuff to ever completely know the universe. And even science itself is starting to run into that question more and more with quantum mechanics. Um, the closer they look at things, even they are having a hard time ignoring that things are chaotic. They're unknowable. Um, 
yeah. So I just science to me is not a great tool for for distinguishing reality, <laughs> and um, they're not going to save us. They actually brought us here. There's this book written by Lewis. Oh, let's see if I can get this last name. Liebenberg called The Art of Tracking and the Origin of Science. I didn't find it that great of a book per se, but it is interesting that he makes that parallel because I feel like the origins of observation, um, testing a theory, things like that, are really good tracking skills. It's just escalation, where we went with those skills. So the, the origins of science, I feel like, aren't aren't bad things. They're actually very good tools of observation. Um, and again, you know, one last plug for Derek Jensen, Language Older Than Words. Man, that that book addresses a lot of the, the topics we're talking about it, right now. If you haven't read it, read it. <clears throat> We've done a lot of podcasts that I feel like have animus themes, including episodes 14 and 15, Herbalism Unplugged, Parts 1 and 2, and episode 29, we just put out Lifeblood. Um, and that brings us to step five, the final step, bushcraft. Mm. God. I love animism. I didn't want to ask those questions, but I felt like uh, I would do more justice to your argument to kind of take that stance. But with no, Bush, go ahead. Well, no, the, the questions I already answered, you answered. Oh. Um, but getting to bushcraft, so wilderness survival skills, it seems like they would be crucial to escaping society to know those skills. Why isn't it further up on the list? Well, for one thing, all these steps are mutually cooperative. They're not strictly progressive, as I've been pointing out. So the fact that it's step five doesn't mean completely that it's the least important. Um, part of my reasoning for putting it at the end of this list are that the landscape has largely been destroyed. I think about the Indians. Um, one of our warfare tactics, I keep saying our, um, as Jensen says, I, I need to stop identifying with the oppressor. Um, one of the warfare tactics that was used against the Indians on the plains was to destroy all the buffalo, kill their food base. And even them, these people that had been living with primitive skills out in the wild their entire lives, never needed civilization, even they started being broken by these things we were doing to the environment. They started coming into the reservations. They started being hungry. Um, and they had all this mutual support. You're out there with a whole tribe of people that knows how to live on the land, that's never known anything else. And they found it, at best, difficult, at worst, impossible. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons I put it at the, at the end. I don't think it gives the immediate results of, say, freeganism or scavenging. Um, some people say it's impossible to live with primitive skills now. I don't, but I do think it's extremely difficult. Hmm. Um, I also really like how this fits after animism. Um, to me, bushcraft should be, the, the proper bushcraft is the manifestation of animism. So if you just go and learn primitive skills, but you haven't really internalized this animus, this new story mindset, you just use the primitive skills the same way you use the skills of our culture, which are very exploitative. Um, they don't help you get closer to nature necessarily. They just help you use it. Mm. I think we need more than that if we're going to escape what we're doing. Um, so I believe the platform of good bushcraft needs to be animism. For instance, when you make a bow drill fire, you need to understand that this is a ritual. This is a conversation you're having with the trees. 
um, you're building your relationship with them. And then it is a prayer for this elder, this, this being of fire to come. And it's something that you have extreme gratitude for. It's not just, I know how to work this machine to get a fire. Mm-hmm. It's a ritual towards conversation and depth. And I think all things, um, like Robin Kimmerer's Honorable Harvest, all things that are the ancient skills are meant to be manifestations of animism, a way to bring your animism into the world into with an action. <clears throat> and they take care of you not because of your superiority, your knowledge of these skills. It's because you have humbled yourself enough to learn how to converse with these entities around you, and they take care of you. And so you are beholden to them. It changes everything when bushcraft is based on animism. Um, I would also say that because if you explore animism first, you have this redefined sense of self, as I was exploring this bigger sense of self, self that includes your tribe and includes beyond. It includes everything around you. Um, Also, it extends to the future generations. You know, we hear, you know, it's almost like a cliche now, the, the next seven generations. Um, but that's part of why you would learn the bushcraft. Even if it doesn't serve you well now, because there's so much litter, we're in a destroyed, we have a destroyed land base, um, it can help. It can definitely help. Like I mentioned foraging earlier, it can help with the scavenging and everything. I wouldn't say ignore bushcraft. But also, these skills, when civilization finally collapses and all the shit is gone, are going to be useful again. This is the way people have found to live. They didn't need anything better. It was good enough, unlike our technology. So we're saving them. We're saving them for people that we will never meet. We're saving them because our sense of self has extended so much that we care about the next seven generations and beyond, and we want to hand them things that we know they will need. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen people on Facebook or I've heard uh, messages that have been sent to you that are like, thank you so much for keeping these skills alive, these survival and wilderness bushcraft skills. Um. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a sacred job. We're holding like each one of these skills is like a little glowing ember. It's like an Apache long match <laughs> and we're we're keeping it alive. We're breathing life into it partly for our own use, but more for the people that will come after. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine... Like, who knows how much time was spent developing these skills? And imagine if the seventh generation after civilization has to reinvent everything. Or how thankful they will be if somebody around got to teach them how to do a hand drill fire. Good way to build a shelter. A trap that works. Yeah, science has such a following these days. We constantly hear about science, technology, engineering, and math. Why is it important to know survival skills? And you, you kind of alluded to this just now. But why is it important to know survival skills when these particular skills are often looked down upon, as one person said, as banging two rocks together versus the technology that's out there now? Why, Teresa, I'm so glad you asked. Oh, why, yes. <laughs> Part of this, like, again, loaded in the question is a, a propaganda. Um, you know, people tell me we can't go backwards. People aren't going to go backwards. Again, two forms of propaganda right there. People aren't going to. You're telling me you will choose not to. We don't know what people will do. I agree the odds are against it, but people can. They can choose any damn thing they want. And the whole premise of going backwards 
That's not what I'm talking about, and that's something that gets thrown up a lot with the argument against this. I look at it as a return to sustainability. I don't think time is this linear tube, like John Zerzan talks about our concept of time, this linear tube we're traveling down and that we're talking about er, slamming on the brakes, putting it in reverse and going backwards. I look at our existence as more this fertile garden, this garden of Eden, this beautiful place. And we took a wrong turn. We veered off. We're in this place where things have turned nightmarish because we've we've become blind for some of the reasons we've talked about. If we go back to this way of living, we're returning to our home. It's not going backwards. It's not a regression. It's a, it's a return to something that worked. It has been proven. It's the one thing in our human experience of human's life that has been time-tested over three million years, and it worked. Um, and tribes. Um, well, let me start with this quote by Daniel Quinn once again. Um, he writes in Beyond Civilization, People are fascinated to learn why a pride of lions works, why a troop of baboons works, or why a flock of geese works, but they often resist learning why a tribe of humans works. Tribal humans were successful on this planet for three million years before our agricultural revolution, and they're no less successful today, wherever they manage to survive untouched. But many people of our culture don't want to hear about it. In fact, they'll vigorously deny it. If you explain to them why a herd of elephants works or why a hive of bees works, they have no problems. But if you try to explain why a tribe of humans works, they accuse you of idealizing them. From the point of view of ethology or evolutionary biology, however, the success of humans and tribes is no more an idealization than the success of bisons and herds or whales and pods. Now, I believe that this way of living, uh, apart from even the, the technology, the letting go of all the technology, but living in tribes, it answers so many of our problems. I talked about how fractured we are, the infighting and the common enemy. If we tore down civilization and found ourselves in tribes again, so many of these issues would be non-issues. Hmm. You don't like gay people? Then maybe you find yourself around other people who don't. And maybe over time, that's part of just your culture. That That's something that people don't want to be. And maybe that, that doesn't happen in your culture, culture. Or maybe it does happen and your views are changed because now these people aren't out there. You're dependent on these people. They become part of your family. You have to change your views. One way or the other, time will mold a group of people to share the same values. And because it happens over time, it works. You th think everybody should be gay. Well, I don't think you're you're going to have to find ways to procreate. But other than that, <laughs> again, you know, like a tribe, that's no problem when you're around people of your tribe. Um Part of the propaganda we're taught, we're taught to that thinking like this is called like even racism. I'm not talking about superiority at all. I'm talking about exactly the opposite. I'm not talking about one set of values being superior over any set of values. I'm saying there is room for all these sets of values. And if they truly work, they will work in a tribe or they will straighten themselves out. Um, you know, I, I think about these damn Celebrate Diversity bumper stickers on people's cars. And again, <laughs> it's that liberal view of diversity. It's my views, what I consider diversity. And if you don't agree with it, I will not tolerate it. <laughs> They're too stupid to miss the, the hypocrisy in that. Um, 
so yeah, to me, like tribes just solve so much. And I would also question what is technology when we talk about, um, you know, versus technology, these banging two rocks together. I think technology, when we boil it down to, is a manifestation, just like bushcraft should be a manifestation of our animus beliefs. What is technology manifesting? And I believe it's discontent. Hmm. We are not happy with the way things are. We want more. We want it faster. We want it better. We don't want to do what we're doing. That spurs technology. I can't think of a more motivating emotion or primal feeling that spurs technology than that. Um, Without that feeling, technology looks much, much different. It looks more like the bow drill. Nobody was waiting for the new design of bow drill to come out. (laughs) It worked. It was good enough. They got deeply involved with it. It became a religious thing with them. The way you make a bow drill, how you hold the bow drill, everything was sacred. This is what technology is meant to be without discontent fueling it. Um, you know, they it said, especially like I think at the aboriginals in Australia, they talk about how we dream the world into existence through our stories. Um, I think this is part of um, why we know these survival skills. They bring us back to this animism. They bring us back to a new world we want to create. And we got to start dreaming it into existence. We got to start telling ourselves stories, warning stories about what this culture did, that time that our ancestors lost their way and almost killed themselves. And all the beings on the planet, all the many tribes were suffering because of the humans and how the humans found their way and were healed. We need to have stories like that, that we begin to start telling. Um, Stories that remind us who we really are. We are so much greater and better than we've been taught. We are not these little dependent, helpless humans. I want to be proud to be a human being again. And I think there is a pride in being a human being. When we find indigenous cultures, we find people who their names over and over mean the people. They are proud. They are proud of who they are. So if we're doing so damn good... Why do you have a hard time finding people who don't just say, yeah, I agree, people are fucked up, they're a scourge on the planet? (laughs) We're ashamed, and we should be, but not because we have to be. We can choose to be who we really are. I'm an optimist. I believe the Earth, once we start going to war with it, we are actively keeping a war going that's harming the Earth. I believe once that stops, I think the Earth is going to heal quicker than anybody thinks. I just see little things that, like, give me hope. I see houses burned down and dandelions pop up the next day. (laughs) Um, I see a street that got abandoned in a little town of Bahama, and the coyotes just take over immediately. The the hawks are flying around. It goes wild so freaking quick. So, you know, we're taught, listen to the scientist. I don't think we need to listen to the scientists to be alarmed at the world. And I don't listen to the scientists when they tell me that it's going to take this amount of years to heal or whatever. Fuck the scientist. I think the earth has a greater power than the scientists have have even begun to notice. And I don't base that on any fact. I just feel it. This earth is like brimming. It's just ready to burst out in healing. But we need to stop actively fighting it. You're listening to the earth. Yeah. And I sometimes I wonder if the scientists are actually part of a propaganda machine to make us feel hopeless. Because what's the point of saving the earth if it's going to be dead for the next however long, if it's that dire? Um 
And all right, let's end up this podcast. We've been going for a very long time. So a couple authors uh, to help you with the bushcraft. I'd say Tom Brown Jr. Not so much the skills in there because he's taught me in classes. Actually, he lies about a lot of the skills as part of coyote teaching. So (laughs) if you want to learn the hard way, go for it. But his philosophy, the things that he writes in his prefaces and introductions and along the way, very animist. I think he's coming from survival skills from a very good place. And Tom L. Pell. Um, everything Tom L. Pell writes, I don't agree with all of it, but particularly participating in nature for survival skills, excellent stuff, um, very practical and helpful, and botany in a day, as I've plugged so many times. And a couple of our podcasts that talk about bushcraft are episode 21, Back to Reality, and episode 25, How Slight a Shelter. Um, this winds up our, I think now our currently longest podcast ever, (laughs) but well worth it. Yeah. And so those are the five steps and I hope they at least get some conversations going. There was a lot of content there, whether you agree or disagree and maybe, or even helpful to you. Um, our message from a listener that we want to share is Ella from Washington, DC, and she writes all good. So, uh, thank you for being so succinct. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the, uh, the criticism and the, uh, no, but thanks. We, we, uh, are grateful for any positive encouragement that we get. I think that's the second comment we've read from Washington, DC. So it sounds like there's a lot of people in DC that want to escape society. Yeah. And if you really think it's all good, I think you need to listen more, Ella, uh, because like there, <laughs> there should be something in there that you are critical of. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's actually a really good thing to find things that you disagree with. But if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, uh, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in the story of B by Daniel Quinn.com. And please review us. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.